the evolution of solar energy, how semiconductors work and make computers possible, and what even is light anyway. All in this episode of Goggles Off. What's up, everybody? Welcome to this episode of Goggles Off. Today, I'm joined by Brett Yarosh. Brett, how are you today? I'm doing great. Thanks, Brandon. Awesome. Um, So, Brett, you received your bachelor's in chemistry from Santa Clara University, Mm -hmm. and then your PhD from UCSB in materials chemistry. Yep. Awesome, awesome. Um, So, can you tell me a little bit about the research you did while at UCSB, what what the majority of your work was, what your focus was? Yeah. Um, So, very broadly, um, my research group was interested in studying organic semiconductors, Um, and so... Organic, in, in this sense, is not um, meaning that it is grown without pesticides. Organic, uh, organic chemistry refers to molecules that are composed primarily of carbon, as well as other non-metals like nitrogen, fluorine, uh, oxygen, you know, whatever. Um, and so organic semiconductors are interesting because traditional semiconductors are made out of inorganic materials like silicon, um, which, you know, are great for a lot of things. Um, but um, are, are lacking in some aspects. And so organic semiconductors, these carbon-based or plastic electronics, basically is what they are, um, have a lot of potential advantages, but um, there's, there's a lot of work that needs to be done in order to make these actually practical. Um, and so that's generally what our research group was uh, concerned with, is how can we make these organic semiconductors better so that they can actually compete with inorganic semiconductors. Right, and semiconductors are critical used in, you know, every facet of life nowadays. I mean, they, they made possible the inter- the internet revolution, you know, computers, smartphone technology, all this stuff. Everybody's using these things all the time, so they impact everybody right at home, whether or not you're a scientist. Um, your work is really complicated, so I kind of want to do a little bit of intro before we really get into the meat. Um, so I think we should describe first what is light. What, what, what is actually going on when you see light and it enters your eye and... Uh, yeah, what, what is that? So, uh, light is when an electron gets excited, um, imagine a ladder, right? So electron is excited. It has all this energy. It jumps up on the ladder. Um, but energy can't be created or destroyed and electrons are lazy. They like to be relaxed in their relaxed state. Just like I like to be relaxed at home sitting on the couch. (laughs) So, uh, they want to relax back down. And so they're going to climb down the ladder, but in doing so they have to release all that excess energy they have. And they do that in the form of a photon, which is light, and that's what we perceive, that's what enters our eyes, and that's, you know, what makes our smartphone displays look so brilliant and all this. Yeah, exactly. So there's this, this interplay between um, electrons that can be in these excited states and photons. They're basically different uh, forms, manifestations of energy. Right, right. Um, so then you mentioned semiconductors, right? We talked about that. Um, but I think it's first kind of important, let's touch on you know, what a conductor is, what an insulator is, um, and then kind of dive into what a semiconductor is. So could you, could you touch on that a little bit? Of course. Um, so I think it's easiest to start probably with metals um, because people are just generally familiar with those. Um, and so metals have um, no energy gap basically between what's called a valence band and conduction band. Um, and so essentially what that means is that the electrons are moving around uh, pretty freely in the metal 
And that's why if you apply a voltage bias or some potential to a piece of metal, the electrons move, like no problem. That's uh, why we use them for electrical wiring all the time. Um, but then um, you have semiconductors where now there's actually an energy gap between this valence band, uh, which is where the electrons typically reside, and the conduction band, which is like the next energy level up. And while the electrons are in the valence band, they don't really move around. Um, so if you apply a voltage to it, you don't really get any current. Uh, but if you can get some of those electrons to go into the conduction band, um, and then you apply that current, or that voltage, sorry, then you will get some current. The electrons can move around no problem if they're in the conduction band. But the key is that there's an energy gap and you've got to get the electrons into that conduction band somehow. Um, and then if that energy gap between the valence band and conduction band is really large, uh, then you've got an insulator basically, because basically the energy gap is so big, you're not practically going to be able to get any of the electrons into the conduction band. Um, and so it's, it's never basically going to conduct electricity. I mean, it theoretically could, but it just, it's not practical. Right. Um, it could theoretically produce electricity. An insulator can, um, for example, glass is an insulator. And if you added enough external energy, like in the form of heat, you could potentially actually get those electrons that go from the valence to the conduction band. However, you actually need to heat up the glass to like beyond its breaking point. So yeah. it, it's not going to happen. It's never going to happen. You're never going to get electrical current if you're stranded on a desert island and all you have is glass. <laughs> um, so yeah, now now let's move into semiconductors a little bit, what you worked on primarily. So uh, what are what are some examples of semiconductors that people can find in their, their day-to-day life that maybe yeah. they don't even really know about? Yeah, so there's, um, for me, the boring uh, application of the semiconductors, like a transistor, which is what makes up computer chips um, and integrated circuits and whatnot. And that basically uses uh, semiconductors to control um, current flowing through these tiny, you know, microscopic devices. Um, and that's, you know, that's the, the building block of computers. But that's not what we were really working on in this lab, at least. We were more interested in... The applications of semiconductors, which um, are related to not only electricity, but also light. Um, and so in particular, those two applications are photovoltaics, solar cells, and uh, light emitting diodes. Mm. And um, those are kind of cool because they're basically the opposite effect. So for a solar cell, um, you are absorbing uh, a photon, a, you know, a wave packet of energy, and then from that uh, energy, you are creating electrical current, right? That's how your solar cell works. In a light emitting diode, you're doing the reverse. You're basically injecting current and then getting those electrons to then produce light out of the device. Hmm. And for, for the non-science listeners out there, uh, light emitting diode is LED. Mm-hmm. So you've probably heard of you know LED TVs and then OLED TVs, which, Brett, you want to speak to that a little bit, what an OLED is? Yeah, uh, definitely. So that's, that's where the organic semiconductors come into play. Um, so basically, if you use traditional inorganic semiconductors like silicon, um, you know, those are great. You can make a lot of many diodes out of them, no problem. Um, but they're, they're these like crystalline materials, so they're kind of brittle, like basically like glass. Mm. They can crack easily. Um, and they're pretty heavy, um, like literally in terms of their weight. Mm. Um, and they, they can also take up a lot of space with the organic semiconductors. You know, these are basically, it's like the same material as plastic. And so you can make them pretty flexible, 
um, like scratch resistant. Um, and, and yeah, so that's where like OLED displays are great for like phone screens and like curved TVs, uh, because they have some of these, you know, interesting properties that inorganic semiconductors just will not have. Mm -hmm. Uh, touching on, you know, the phone screen display and TV displays, one being able to, you know, curve the screen in such a way that people can see it and it can fit into the screen. Uh, but also OLEDs have a wider viewing angle, right? So for better displays, uh, what does that really mean? Yeah, uh, I was just thinking of that, but I failed to mention it. So when you have an inorganic semiconductor, um, you can you can almost think of it as being like this block of material, like a literal cube. And when you apply current across that uh, to generate these excited states, which eventually emit photons, um, the, the crystal of that structure is set up that the photons are basically always going to leave parallel or perpendicular to some surface of that cube. So all of the photons are going like the exact same direction, Mm. which means you're not going to get any photons going at an angle, basically. And so you'll notice on like some old computer screens and TVs, if you stand up and like look down at the monitor, like from a, uh, from the side at some extreme angle, the picture looks totally distorted. Mm, Right. Uh, but with the organic semiconductors, you're basically emitting from these molecules that are randomly dispersed in some material at all these different orientations. And so the light is going to come out at all of these random orientations. And so that's actually good because that means when you move your head around, you're still getting light coming at you from every angle. Awesome. That's why I can view my phone, you know, from, while laying <laughs> in my bed, staring up at it and then also staring down at it from any side, from any angle. Yeah, exactly. Which is great. Um, so you mentioned photovoltaics, right? So we talked about LEDs, but what can you touch on what a photovoltaic is? What 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 kind of that is? Yeah. Um, so in the photovoltaic cell, um, it's uh, again you have this the semiconductor material, and um, as I said earlier, there's this energy gap between the ground state and the excited state, the valence band and conduction band, and so normally you don't have any current going through the device. But if a photon comes in uh, to your, your semiconductor and it absorbs that photon, which is basically energy, it can promote an electron into an excited state or into that conduction band. And then you can basically collect that electron that before it was not moving, it absorbs the light. Now it's able to move freely. You can sweep that out at an electrode, uh, complete a circuit, and you've got current flowing. And, and so that's how you make a solar cell. So what's what's like a common example of a solar cell? Like like silicon-based things, I guess, would be... Yeah, the, the solar cells that you see on top of people's houses. Um, I've seen they're even making like little ones uh, that are like portable for charging mm. your phone. Mm, yeah. Um, the, the uses, I think, for solar technology are growing mm-hmm. because the technology is becoming more developed. Um, but even still, one of the limitations is... I mean, you've probably seen this silicon solar cells. They're like these huge freaking panels mm-hmm. that weigh a lot mm-hmm. and they're hard to mount. Um, but with these organic semiconductors, like plastic electronics, you, they're flexible enough You can and thin enough, you can like roll it up like a piece of paper into a tube, you know, stick it in your backpack, go on your hike, uh, unravel it, lay it out to cover some, you know, surface area and generate electricity from that. And it, so it could be super lightweight and portable. Wow, that is super cool. So it, w- it would really make camping way, like you could have almost a generator in your backpack yeah. that weighs nothing. Yeah. Um, and we actually, you actually showed me some of these, these, these solar cells that you print out 
like on these long reams of paper and they really do weigh almost yeah. nothing. They feel like a piece of paper and you can, you know, mass lay these on rooftops and stuff, which may or, you know, may not be able to take structural loads. Like if you loaded a bunch of silicon panels on a non-load bearing roof, it's going to collapse. But these mm -hmm. guys, you can line on top of every roof. You could even make them transparent and line them, you know, in, in glass pane windows and stuff. So it's really just expanding the niches that solar cells can kind of fit into and really going to help the field. Uh, but do you think that organic solar cells could replace the silicon-based um, industry, or do you think they'll kind of work hand-in-hand -hand to fill all the niches? Yeah, that's a really good question, and it was, uh, I think, like a kind of intense debate in their, at least their, the organic semiconductor community for a while, uh, because people who were researching these, you know, part of the, the motivation for researching them is like, oh, these can replace inorganic solar cells someday, like they'll be good enough. Uh, but as time went on and they continued to not be as good as inorganic solar cells, um, that's when people kind of took a, a step back and said, okay, maybe we shouldn't be trying to replace silicon solar cells, but we should be trying to uh, complement them or find, just as you said, these niche areas where the organic semiconductors, even if they're less efficient than the silicon solar cells, um, despite being less efficient, they can still have these advantages because there's these niche applications for them. And efficiency meaning the percent of photons that they convert into electrical current, right? That's that's what you mean when you say efficiency? Exactly. So it's like number of photons that go in versus number of electrons that you get out. And then what ballpark range, like what is the efficiency of an inorganic, like silicon-based one, as opposed to, you know, these organic ones that people are producing? Yeah, so silicon, I want to say, is above 20... I don't think, so commercial grade, I think is around 22, 25%. Um, but um, that's weird because if you if you make these in a lab with these like very special procedures, you can get it up to like 30%, but it's just not commercially viable. And then if you use these other uh, more specialized uh, inorganic materials, you can get like over 50%, especially if you like stack them in a layer so you can really increase the efficiency a lot with the inorganic method, but it's just not practical, which again brings us back to the organic, even though their efficiencies are around, you know, 15%, like at best, which is, you know, quite a bit less than silicon. Um, they're so much easier to make and you can mass produce them uh, so much more easily. It's like, okay, maybe the efficiency difference isn't that big of a deal. Mm -hmm. Right. And one thing that we haven't talked about a limitation of the inorganic ones is just the abundance of these heavy metal inorganics in the world as opposed to carbon which is ubiquitous throughout nature i mean everything's made out of carbon so yeah it's it's way easier and it's, it, we have more resources to draw and make these things from um so they could potentially be a lot better than the silicon panels but i think using a combination of both definitely makes sense in the future especially because the silicon market already has such a huge infrastructure already in place right so it's not yeah. like you're going to stop making yeah it's going to be too hard to knock that out completely it, it doesn't make sense right um so your work was to improve on this technology, right? To pr improve on the photovoltaic technology and, you know, LED technology. Um, and in what ways are you kind of doing this? What was the approach there? Yeah, so um, the approach was the scientific method. <laughs> um, no, but what, what we were really doing, so we weren't really a synthesis group. So we weren't necessarily making new molecules to then test out and say, oh, well, is this molecule better than that one for the solar cell or the light emitting diode or whatever. We were more of an analytical group. 
So we would take um, molecules that other people made, basically, and just really studied the crap out of them um, and try to understand why does this one work better than that one? Uh, or what are the limitations in this molecule? Um, you know, theoretically, how well could it perform? What's holding it back? Um, so, so that was that was our approach. It was somewhat exploratory, um, but it was really trying trying to understand why, not necessarily like what molecule is better, but why is one better than the other or worse than the other even. And then one of the big limitations that seems to have come up in, in your thesis was this idea that statistically 75% of the excited state electrons, when they get excited, are actually going to go into what's called a triplet state where the uh, spin of the electrons is now uh, going the same direction. So the electron has flipped um, as opposed to a singlet state where the electrons are, their spins are paired. So one's going up, one's going down. Um, and this is, this is important because a singlet state, you know, will radiate, radiatively, you know, release a photon and, you know, release that energy, whereas a triplet state won't. And so if, if 75% of these are going to this non-radiative triplet state, you're losing out 75% of your energy. Um, mm. So what's a way you're kind of, your, your group or you yourself kind of try to combat this? Yeah, so we were collaborating with uh, some researchers from Japan who basically pioneered this uh, technology called Thermally Activated Delayed Fluorescence, TADF for short. Um, and so basically what they were able to do is um, uh, engineer these molecules in a certain way that the uh, basically this, this singlet and triplet state that Brandon is talking about it basically minimized the energy difference between those two different electron configurations. Um, and so by doing that, uh, the is basically these molecules can interconvert between those two states very rapidly, well, some more rapid than others. Um, but at the end of the day, that interconversion allows you to actually emit more light or a higher probability of emitting light. Um, and so that they basically showed the phenomenon, but there wasn't much understanding behind it. And so we were fortunate enough to get, uh, you know, some handfuls of those molecules from that lab. Um, and they said, hey, you know, you guys want to study these, try to help us figure out um, why some work better than others, um, how we can make better ones in the future, um, you know, just see, see what you can figure out. Um, and uh, so it was super open-ended. Um, but that, you know, I was super into it, um, as you know, a younger grad student and there's, here's this new phenomenon people are talking about. They don't fully understand it, uh, had access to the molecules and tools to study it. So I was like, yeah, like, let, let me do some experiments. Let's go Let's see what I can figure out. Nice. Um, and did you set out to investigate this thermally activated delayed fluorescence or did your PhD start somewhere else? Um, that's a good question. I don't think it really started with that, but it basically was, um, I, I was going to be the kind of like optical expert type guy in the group and was going to be, I wanted to be more geared towards, um, you know, optical phenomena, studying light, how it interacts with these organic semiconductors. And, um, so then it naturally came to a point where it's like, yeah, we've got these TADF materials, Brett, like, why don't you try to do something with it and see what you can figure out? And one of the biggest limitations with studying these TADF materials was this idea that it was really hard to 
quantify the parameters that you know make them have this have this you know property um and then you come in and you're mm-hmm. like hey i got a, i got a way to measure all these things uh can you speak to that a little bit yeah um well i didn't just come in and said say hey i know how to do this <laughs> but um i was actually trying to characterize another property of uh, the materials um which is basically after a molecule absorbs that energy from a photon um that energy can actually basically hop to another molecule that's nearby. Which is, it's, it's a diffusion process where the excitation energy is transferred to neighboring molecules. And I was trying to measure actually that property, basically how fast the excitation diffuses in the material. And that was going along fine. And then I was, you know, reading more papers, uh, theoretical papers about this mechanism and the rates of interconversion between the singlet and triplet state and saw that some people had kind of formulated these analytical models, but they weren't able to do anything in it with it because there are too many um, interdependent parameters, so you can fit the data to it. And um, I was I was just really fascinated by that and started staring at these equations a lot more with the data that I had, and eventually realized that um, with the data that I had and making some assumptions in these equations. I could actually solve basically these rate equations and figure out a ton of these really important parameters in the molecule, like how fast is it going from the triplet to singlet state and back, and how many times is it going to do that? Mm. Um, So it really, uh, it took me by surprise. (laughs) I didn't know it was going to happen, but I was just really curious about it, and um, yeah, it came together. That's awesome. And then what is what does that mean in terms of the future of photovoltaics or, or, you know, the enhancement of LED technology? Right. So it's very difficult to make something better if you don't know precisely what it is that's making it better. Or if you can't measure the property, which is determining whether or not uh, it's it's good or bad. Um, and so really what my work was is, is really more of a, hey, here's a method that we can use to actually measure this property. We can benchmark some materials and then start comparing them and then really figure out, okay, you know, what is it about this molecule that's making it work better than this other molecule? Mm. And so we were working closely again with our uh, Japanese collaborators, uh, Chihaya Adachi. And, uh, um, you know, we were basically giving them feedback on their molecules and saying, hey, you know, this one, uh, this rate increased, but this one decreased. And then we look at the chemical structure and say, okay, well, maybe it was because of this methyl group over here, or, oh, this one had a phenyl group, you know, these different chemical substitutions. And we're trying to relate this to the uh, performance of the materials in uh, light emitting diode. So you're, you essentially kind of gave them the tools to investigate what makes an efficient TADF material and which will then help them inform like inform their design uh, in the future. Exactly. Gotcha. Very cool. Very cool. Um, love the science, love everything about it. But the real reason I wanted to ask you on the show is because I, you know, immediately I, I Brett was my TA uh, when I was in a general <laughs> chemistry laboratory and immediately I felt that he was different than a lot of scientists, just very cool, very easy to talk to, congenial. Um, oh, thanks, man. Yeah, of course. <laughs> uh, but I'm just kind of curious, you know, a little bit more about your life and stuff and just who you are. So 
how did you get into science? Where, where did this, this passion come from? I mean, I know you're super passionate. I mean, I was on your LinkedIn earlier today and you have this uh, picture of you in a science you know, lab coat that says, give me science or give me death. Yeah. You know, very hardcore. And, I'm just, you know, <laughs> what, what sparked that? Were you always interested in it? Is it something you kind of discovered later in life? Um, yeah, I was definitely always, I think, scientifically minded uh, from a young age. I was just always naturally curious about things. And I really wanted to understand um, why things were the way they were, how they worked and whatnot. Um, so I was, you know, academically oriented from a young age. But um, then I think more in like my teenage years, I uh, like to blow things up, you know, with fireworks um, and did some, you know, at home little experiments making explosives and whatnot. Re re um, redox chemistry. Yeah. 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 Um, but but, uh, you know, as much as that was just fun, it also, you know, took some research on my part to figure out, you know, what am I doing? Is this safe or not, is it going to be controlled, um, and understanding, you know, why it's happening, um, that was probably equally as exciting as actually doing the reaction and, you know, seeing the sparks and flames or whatever. Um, so, so that was, that was, that was cool. <laughs> and that definitely got me motivated to learn more about chemistry. Um, then I was also, uh, fascinated by, uh, drugs and pharmaceuticals. And just the idea that these tiny little molecules could have these profound effects in people's uh, physiology or um, mental state of being, like that's, that was just too crazy for me to ignore. I like just really wanted to understand more about that, like what's going on. Um, and so that also drove me towards chemistry. Hmm. Yeah, it, I mean, one thing that kind of reminded me of when you said it is just when I chose chemistry, it was just this idea that there's so much power there. Like, so you can do so much good for people with, you know, with drug design, you know, with building rockets. There's just so, there's just a wealth of knowledge that actually can advance mankind's, you know, situation in life and our, our everything that we have in our technology. And, you know, there's just so much power to unlock. And it just felt really, really cool and vastly interesting. Yeah. Um, were you always, like, good at science or... You know, was, is math and science your strong subject, or are you kind of good at everything? Um, <laughs> I'm not going to toot my own horn. Um, yeah, sci well, in particularly chemistry. Um, well, I always thought that chemistry was the subject that wasn't so challenging for me that I struggled with it, but it was challenging enough to other people that I think I relatively excelled. Hmm. Uh, whereas physics... Um, I just always came slowly to me in terms of uh, physics courses and biology uh, just wasn't very stimulating to me um, I hate math I think I'm I think I'm pretty good at it mm -hmm. but I don't like math I'm sure I'm sure you're <laughs> in the top one percentile of math math wizards in the world yeah I'm sure you're very good at it um, but I also hate math but I do it all the time for my job um, so do you have like you know any advice for a young scientist or somebody similar to yourself that's you know interested or has this passion for science um, but they don't really know you know what they want to do you know should they just follow what's most stimulating to them what are some things they can do to kind of put themselves in the right position to get to to be a successful scientist such as yourself yeah um well i think um kind of like i was saying about how 
uh, I kind of fell into chemistry because I was, uh, it was challenging, but uh, also difficult. I mean, I was good at it, but it was challenging. And so I think it's important to, um, you know, try to be in a field where, you know, you're not the worst at it, you know, you don't want to do something that you're not good at. Mm. Uh, but at the same time, if it's too easy um, and not challenging, you're not going to be stimulated. I, like, I don't think that's going to be interesting enough. And so I think it's important to figure out, you know, what are you good enough at to be competent, but is challenging enough that there's a lot of room for growth. Um, and I think that's what's going to keep you going. And that's one of the great things about science is that it doesn't end. There's always more to be done um, in science. It's not like, oh, uh, you know, you, you did the experiment. There are no more experiments left in the world. We're done. Close the book. Uh, it, there's always more out there. That actually cracks me up because when I was a kid um, and I first kind of like started thinking about becoming a scientist and the notions of it, I, I learned what a PhD was and how a PhD you have to have a new scientific contribution to the field or add something to the field that's novel. Um, and as a kid, I'm just sitting there thinking like, well, haven't we done everything? <laughs> yeah. uh, and then I actually get into it and it's like the amount that we don't know vastly, you know, outweighs what we do know. We basically know nothing, <laughs> you know, so it's, it's it, there's so much to do. If you're a young scientist out there, there's a project out there for you that'll be specific for you. And there's, there's something to do for sure. Yeah. Um, I would also like to say that um, maybe something that wasn't uh, apparent to me immediately um, is actually the ability to express yourself like creatively through science. Definitely. Um, there are a lot of different ways to accomplish like the same experiment. Um, and science always needs, you know, a, a fresh angle, a fresh pair of eyes to look at some problem um, because you, there, there are lots of different ways of solving the same problem. Um, and so I think science can actually be a really great, great platform for uh, creative people. That's not saying that you have to be a creative type person to do well in science. And it's definitely a different type of creativity, I think, than like artwork. Um, but it gives you a lot of room to, um, to express yourself in, in different ways and, and to find these, find the solutions to problems in unique ways. And I think that that's really cool that a lot of other fields don't offer. No, I totally, I totally agree. There is a, a level of creativity inherent to science that, you know, maybe you wouldn't think of, you wouldn't think that science is as creative as art and it is a totally different type of creative creativity, but you have to think about your problem and approach the problem in a way that you've, you know, you've come up with, you've created this approach and everybody's going to approach it differently. It's like, you know, and you, you might have an idea and someone's like, no, that's not going to work, but it does. And yeah. so it's, it's, it's interesting and it's a way for you to kind of be creative in a way that really, I don't think a lot of people get to experience and it's, it's really fun. I really love it. Um, so what, you know, aside from science, kind of got any hobbies, what do you like to do? Um, yeah, I like playing rugby. <laughs> really? That's cool. Yeah, not playing at the moment, um, but I played uh, during my undergrad uh, as well as a little bit uh, during grad school. Um, and that was just super fun. My parents never let me play football in mm -hmm. high school because I was a bit smaller and they thought I was going to get hurt. And they're like, oh, we got to save your precious brain. Uh, and I was very resentful of that. Um, but uh, rugby, you know, that, uh, that got the physical side out of me. And uh, the level of camaraderie on the rugby field was just awesome. It was really cool to be mm -hmm. a part of a rugby team and experience that. I uh, yeah, I didn't you know I didn't play in college or anything. I played a couple games though, um, or nice. more matches or whatever you would call it. Just yeah, 
I, my I, my girlfriend at the time was like, yo, you should try some clubs and stuff. So I went to the club rugby team at UCSB and checked it mm-hmm. out. Um, ended up not doing it just because of financial situation at the time. It required a lot of money. But it was so fun. Like, yeah. incredibly fun. It was like, you know, a blend of you know, soccer and, and American football where, you know, there was the physical aspect of it where you tackle and, you know, explode. But there was also just the nonstop going that I think is yeah. comes with soccer. Right. It's so a you're, ton of running. it's insane. <laughs> it's an insane sport. Like, yeah. Oh my gosh, those guys must be the fittest on the planet. Cause it's just absolutely crazy. Yeah. So you just got the brain and the brawn, I guess. <laughs> I wasn't that good. <laughs> That's awesome. Um, uh, I was reading over your, you know, your thesis that you sent me. And one of the things that I thought that was kind of weird um, not weird, but just interesting, was this award you got um, for mythology? Like, <laughs> w- w- what is that? What was that about? Yeah, um, I went to a uh, charter school for high school that was uh, really geared towards um, Western civilization, basically, and, and the roots of that. Um, so there's huge focus on uh, Greek and Roman history. Um, and so as part of the, you know, Greek history, you know, comes Greek mythology. Mm-hmm. Um, and so, you know, I read all the classics, the Iliad, the Odyssey, the Aeneid, and, um, yeah. Is there, do you have any sort of like fate, like favorite mythology story? Anything that like really speaks to you? Um, yeah, I really liked, uh, the Iliad, which is, uh, the story of Achilles and the Trojan horse, don't follow Troy, Hector. Um, I was like really uh, enamored by this uh, dilemma that Achilles uh, finds himself in where he can either, you know, kind of be this great warrior, um, but live a short life and basically die in battle or be a nobody and live, you know, a calm farm lifestyle till old age. Um, And him choosing the short, uh, but in my opinion, more noble life, um, just really stood out and has impacted me because when I, when I do things, I try to think of that and, you know, give it a hundred percent, um, you know, accomplish that goal for its sake and don't worry about what it's going to take to get there. Maybe that's not the best approach for everyone. Um, but, uh, if, if you can put a lot of pressure on yourself and, and do well in that type of environment, I think you can get pretty far. Very cool. Another thing, I mean, kind of touching off that um, and that inspiration that you got in your thesis, you also mentioned uh, a couple people who inspired you right in your kind of, like, you know, <laughs> yeah. uh, the opening. And it was Socrates, uh, Theodore Roosevelt and Anne Rand. Can you speak to that? Why did you choose those people? What about them kind of helped you get through your Ph.D.? Yeah. Um, so Socrates got me to the door. Um, I have, uh, tattooed on myself, his famous saying, the unexamined life is not worth living. And for me, part of science is really just the pursuit of truth, um, which is pretty philosophical, I think. And I am also attracted to philosophy in general. Um, and so for me, grad school was a part of pursuing the truth, um, and then um, Teddy Roosevelt it helped carry me, I think, through uh, grad school. Um, I read his, well, listened to his, his book. I think it's called like, Morning on Horseback. It's a biography of his relatively earlier life before he was president. And just the things that this guy was doing, man, it was insane. He's just 
constantly active doing stuff, you know, action, uh, you know, do more work, um, uh, get things done, that, that type of attitude of don't slow down, uh, that, that really helped, in, in, especially in the middle of grad school. You've been there for a while, things aren't always going very well, and you kind of got to just put your head down and keep working, even if things aren't going great. Um, and so he was really inspiring for that reason. And Ayn Rand, um, I read Atlas Shrugged. Um, oh, I've been wanting to read that so bad. <laughs> it's I, awesome. Uh, totally unrelated, but uh, there's this video game called Bioshock, okay. which draws a lot off of uh, Atlas Shrugged, and I hell uh, want to read it because it's like my favorite video game of I all didn't time. Know that. But uh, continue. <laughs> um, so yeah, I read that book uh, more towards the end of my PhD, um, and what I kind of took from that is. You know, going through a lot of grad school is a very humbling experience um, because you realize even if you are good at whatever science you're doing, there's a lot that you don't know and there are other people out there who know more than you. Mm. Um, but the thing uh, that I took from Ayn Rand is that um, you should basically be confident in um, what you have to provide to um, whatever activity you're doing. Um, and so for me that was, Hey, you know, maybe I haven't done a whole lot or anything that, you know, crazy awesome, but I should be really proud about what I've done in my grad school career thus far. Hmm. So those, those are my, uh, my heroes of grad school. <laughs> very, very cool. I mean, I, I gave me a smile when I read that. I was like, Oh wow. I wonder what the story is behind this. Yeah. Um, you know, touching off that platforming off that, what would you say is kind of one of the biggest adversities that you faced in graduate school? Um, not being respected by my advisor, <laughs> oh, um, which, you know, I'm laughing cause it's like somewhat trivial because, uh, especially, uh, in light of recent events, you know, that's maybe that's not real adversity. Um, but in, in this realm of science, yeah, that was definitely an obstacle. Uh, at times it was an obstacle that I had to deal with. Um, and I think I actually learned a lot from it. I think my advisor was particularly um, hard-headed, maybe you could say. I I'm not sure what the right word is. But, um, oh man, did I learn a ton about um, like how to deal with people, especially like a boss um, and, and your choice of words and the way that you present the data um, you have to kind of carefully construct it in a way uh, to to generate a uh, constructive conversation. You can't just, you know, barge in and start showing, you know, whatever results from some experiment and expect to have a meaningful conversation right after that. Like you have to put in the work and think about how you're going to, to present this in order to have a constructive dialogue afterwards. So I definitely learned a lot from that. It's kind of funny. Uh, because I actually also have a small relationship with your advisor. Yeah. <laughs> uh, I I came to Brett when I was, I think, a junior or finishing up my sophomore year of college, really thirsty to get into a research lab and really actually start doing science. And, you know, inquired with him, you know, what, what what's the way to do it? How do you how do you make this happen? And he, he told me the most important thing is to get into a lab and start researching. Um, and he's like, you know, I could really use somebody to help me out with my project, uh, you know, you should reach out to my advisor, this and that, and we'll see if we can get you in. And Yeah, I mean, Brandon was, like, not only a smart guy, but he's 
so enthusiastic and passionate and hardworking about science. It's like, dude, I don't care if you're like super into the research field that I'm working in or uh, have all the right background. It's like, you're going to work hard and you're going to learn well. So like, please, please, please. I hope I can get this guy to work for me. (laughs) Right. And then so... Uh, Brett gave me some advice that I should read all these papers and then reach out to the professor and, you know, demonstrate a thorough understanding of what I read and ask some questions that, you know, could could spark a conversation and hopefully that would get her interested in me enough to give me a position in the lab. Um, ultimately, it didn't work out. Uh, no hard feelings there because I ended up doing research in another lab. I, I have hard feelings. <laughs> he has hard feelings because um, I could have definitely helped you out a lot, but... Uh, unfortunately that didn't happen but something really great that came out of that was that you know you told me this process of how to actually approach a professor and how to you know get your foot in the door and actually you know get on their radar and though it didn't work out for me that time I used it to get into my other lab in Irene Chen's lab Um, and then it kind of was a, a pay it forward kind of thing because you know 10 or 15 people approached me as I was, you know, in a research lab years later, and they're like, Brandon, like, how do I get into a research lab? What do I need to do? And I was able to actually give them the same advice that you gave me, and it worked out most of the time. And now these people are, you know, they did research in undergraduate, now they're also pursuing graduate studies, and it's just, it's really kind of this mentorship chain that really started with you and kind of sparked an interest in me to get really involved in research, and then I got a bunch of people involved in research and I think it's important for scientists to, to help each other out and always have each other's backs. Yeah, thanks, man. That's awesome and super rewarding to hear that, uh, I guess, my, my efforts or my encouragement of other people uh, has not gone uh, unnoticed. Yeah, I, I, I didn't think, you know, I'm sure you didn't really think that it would spark a bunch of people to get into labs, but it really did. Like, I really took that advice, that exact same email you sent me, and I would send it out to people like, this is what yeah. you need to do, this is how you get in. And the biggest the biggest thing into you know getting into graduate school afterwards or getting a job in science is having research experience, right? And it's kind of hard to get that unless you can do that in undergraduate. So definitely, definitely helped me out and helped a lot of people out. So yeah. kudos to you. Yeah, I will also say on that note, um, I, I, I knew a lot of grad students who would not take the time of day to give advice to, you know, whatever undergraduate student asked them some question about whatever. Um, and so I think it is important in the sciences to seek out those people who you can identify are willing to sacrifice some of their time in order to genuinely help you out. Um, because those people are kind of rare, uh, but but can really do a lot for you. And I, and I did that myself uh, when I was in grad school. I looked to older grad students and to postdocs and other people and tried to figure out, you know, who's actually going to take the time of day to, like, really help me not just give me some quick little answer and get me out the door, but like sit down and talk me through it and answer my questions. I think, I think it's really important to identify mentors like that. Definitely. Um, awesome. So what, you know, what's next for you? You know, you got, you just got hired at HRL laboratories. Um, you know, what's, what's kind of the future look like for you? Yeah. I mean, HRL laboratories is, amazing i absolutely love it there so i'm not really thinking beyond (laughs) hrl but you know of course i want to um move up in the company there and also expand into different research areas there uh, because what i'm doing right now is pretty narrowly focused which i suppose is to be expected for a new employee um so yeah i'm just working on you know developing my career there at hrl and hopefully getting involved in something else i've i kind of I kind of miss teaching. 
Um, so I've been thinking about, you know, like volunteering, do some like science outreach stuff. I did a fair amount of that uh, in grad school or getting involved in local politics, some, something like kind of community based. Um, that's, that's what I've really got my, my site set on now that I've, now that I've got like my career basically figured out and stable and I'm out of school. (laughs) How does it feel to, you know, graduate school is such a intense time and you do get, you do get a fair stipend in a lot of graduate schools and you know, it's a living wage, but how does it feel to now kind of be on the other side and just have actually secured a job and, you know, your career is set and you're doing something it sounds like you really like, you know, what is, you know, a lot of work went into that. How does it feel to kind of be looking at it from, you know, standing on top of the mountain now? Yeah. The best word I can use to describe that feeling is vindicated because it really felt like it was a battle. And during the battle, I, I, I didn't know what was going to become of it. You know, you might hear, oh, the job market is pretty bad, or what are you doing uh, in school for five more years? You could be working, getting a job. And, you know, I'm hearing these voices every so often, and it makes you wonder, you know, should I be doing this? Is it going to work out for me? Um, and and so just to be where I'm at now, where I love my job, and I'm, you know, making a decent amount of money, um, still like doing research stuff. It's just, it feels so awesome. That's great. Man. Like That's... Now, now I know that it was worth it. Cause at the time you don't know if it's going to be worth it. Mm-hmm. That's awesome. That's, I'm so glad it worked out for you. Cause I really think like you're a person that deserves it. Right. Because you took your, like you said, one of those rare exceptions that really took the time to help foster not only my scientific growth, but then the scientific growth of everybody that I influenced afterwards. So it's awesome to see that it's paying off for you. You know, that's Thanks, really man. great. Um, What's uh, let's touch back to the science a little bit. What is next, but for photovoltaics, what do you think? What do you anticipate is going to happen in that? Um, interesting. Um, so I still think that there's the the capital required, at least for silicon solar cells, um, is still pretty high. Like if you want to put some on your roof, you need a lot of cash up front, basically, or you, you know, take out a loan or whatever. Uh, to install them um, and you, but you know like that's not the way we think about like our cell phones basically like you don't take out a loan to get your cell phone for instance right so you know if if organic semiconductors can be reasonably efficient which they're like pretty close I think to the level they need to be and they can be manufactured cheaply enough um, then then they're really going to become widespread mm-hmm. and we're going to see them I mean, it's hard to predict where we're going to see them right? because we don't really have that, that opportunity right now. But um, and like you mentioned with the windows, like you, you look at a skyscraper and that basically every surface of that skyscraper could be converting some sunlight. Well, okay, not every surface because the sun, you know, isn't shining right. 360 degrees, but you get my point. <laughs> Big surfaces um, that are otherwise just glass and metal not serving any real purpose could be converted into, into solar cells. Um, and, and that, then that totally changes, you know, our reliance on, on oil. Yeah. Super cool. Very exciting field. And I, yeah, I'm really stoked for what's going to happen next. And your work is definitely going to help people kind of advance the field. So kudos to you. I will also say, uh, I, uh, left out perovskites. This has been a huge thing in the, um, uh, solar cell community uh, lately um, and it's weird because they're kind of a mix 
of organic semiconductors and inorganic semiconductors. Ooh. So they use the basically the way you make them is very similar to the way you would make organic semiconductors, um, but their properties um, are a lot more like inorganic semiconductors. Um, and they're pretty efficient. I think they're like around 20% or maybe a little higher. Um, so those are looking super pro- promising. Um, we'll, we'll see. We'll see how, how it pans out. But I think I don't think that the you know solar cell technology is going away. And I don't think that you know silicon fits all the needs um, of a, you know energy intensive society. And so we got a you know a bunch of smart people working on these other uh, solar cell technologies, and I think it's gonna pay off eventually. Very cool, very cool. Well, once again, Brett, thank you so much for coming on the show. It's been awesome. Um, that about does it for us. Is there anything you want to say to the listeners at all? Science is awesome. <laughs> awesome. Get after it. Awesome. Thanks for listening, everybody. Till next time. This is goggles off. Thank you.